Angel Heart Radio Angel Heart Radio programs should not be used to replace your legal or medical advice. Welcome everyone to Angel Heart Radio. You are our focus. We want you to know that you matter in the world and that you're important to the world. We're here to remind you of just how valuable and needed you are right now. Help us to help others. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, post, tweet, pin, let everyone know how amazing Angel Heart Radio is. So again, welcome to Angel Heart Radio. Powered by love, Angel Heart Radio is sponsored by angellight777.com. Welcome everyone to Angel Heart Radio. I'm your host, Deb Goldberg. And it brings me great pleasure to be here with you today, and it's an honor to serve you in the highest way that I can by bringing you messages of divine love and blessings for your life. You are dearly loved, cherished, and blessed. Today we have an amazing show on the difference in worldview between military and civilian mentality and the role it plays in veteran suicide and our responsibility as human beings. So this is a great topic, a very sensitive topic. My co-host today is Annette McCoy, who is here with us today as I'm still a rookie at broadcasting, and she is here to help support this show. Thank you, Annette. Thank you for having me, Deb. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, thanks. Um, I'm grateful for your help and uh, continuing to train me. So, because <laughs> I need it. <laughs> oh, don't we all? I've learned things by being in the chat room this way today. So, thank you, Deb. Oh, well, you're welcome. Um, also, I would like to introduce. A friend of mine, Ron Zaleski, founder of The Long Walk Home, which is a veterans nonprofit organization in Key Largo, Florida. Ron is an amazing humanitarian and has dedicated his life to teaching others about PTSD, veteran suicide, and supporting veterans make the transition from military life to civilian life. Ron uh, is a non-combat Marine who served in 1970 to 1972. He walked the Appalachian Trail barefoot in 2006 through 2007 to create awareness about post-traumatic stress disorder. And then he walked barefoot across America in 2010 through 2011, which is actually 3,400 miles with a petition he brought to Washington, D.C. to get mandatory counseling for all military personnel prior to discharge before running a center in 2015 and 2016 in Key Largo, Florida, to help veterans with any issues they may have in their transition. Ron resides in Key Largo, where he is working on a book about his walks, Ron, it is an honor and a pleasure to be your friend and bring this well-needed topic, your knowledge and experience, to broadcast radio. Welcome, Ron. Thank you very much for having me on. You are very uh, welcome. Very welcome. So do you, do you want me to go r right into this or lead the way here? Okay, well, you know, I have a couple of questions written out about, like, what actually made you take up this awesome task to help veterans? So I thought maybe having some background would be really helpful for people in knowing what motivated you to do this. Well, I was born in a, to a typical family where my father was a veteran of World War II, so I know the side of it being in the impact zone of a veteran with post-traumatic stress because I'm of Polish descent. My father uh, went and was in Auschwitz helping clean out the ovens, and that's our relatives. He was scraping off the floor. And so it had a severe impact on him because he also watched 
12-year-old uh, boys be executed that were in the wolf pack. That's so right. my father drank every day of my life and uh, beat me every day physically or verbally. So, my uh, goodness. Yeah, so I just thought that was a regular family. Right. And uh, what happened, I became my father. I went in the Marines, and uh, I got out. And, I was, well, what happened, I had got into a fight with my commanding officer. I don't believe in killing. I was brought up strict Catholic. I couldn't understand it because at that age everything is black and white. And if you don't say what you do, you're a hypocrite. So, you know, the church says it's wrong to kill, but then they let you go to war. So I went in to hurt my parents because I won the draft lottery. My number was 34. And um, I told them, oh, I'm going in the Marines. And I did it to hurt them. And they said, why are you going in? You don't believe in killing. I said, well, it must be okay because the church doesn't stop it. And I want to see what it's like. And um, my mother cried. And you know how you think you know what you want, but it's not what you want. And then I regretted it. And then my father looked at me like he knew something I didn't, and he wasn't going to tell me. So I go in, and I get into a fight with my commanding officer, and I get orders to go to Vietnam. And he invites me into his office before I go on leave. And he said, uh, what do you think of that, Zaleski? And I says, I think the only way you're going to get me over there is if you chain me to a helicopter, because I'm not going to go. So uh, he says, is that right? And we chatted a little more, and I went home on leave, and I got down on my knees, and I prayed. And I said, God, help me, because I don't think I have the courage not to shoot another man. I'm afraid, and I want to live. So I decided I wasn't going to tell my parents. I wasn't going to run to Canada. I was going to go suffer the consequences, which at that time was five years in prison or facing the firing squad. And when I went, and there was five others I was supposed to go with, they all go. When it came my turn, I said, I'm not going. And the guy said, don't worry, you coward. Your orders have been changed. So the only thing I can think is my commanding officer realized to send me over would endanger everybody's life that was with me, my life. And um, he changed my orders for me. And... Uh, you know, but, you know, I just thought, oh, thank God, I'm lucky, I made it, you know, and you're 19, you're not thinking. So a month sure. before I get out, I meet one of the five, and he's limping. I said, what happened? He said, we all got shot, and two were dead. Wow. <clears throat> so I carried this guilt and this anger and this shame, because did I do the right thing? Should I have been in? Could I have saved them? You know, you you carry that guilt. and. Sure. um being angry and defiant as I was with my great attitude, I decided, you know what, they fought for my freedom, I can do what I want, I'm not wearing shoes. So when I got out, I didn't wear shoes, and people say, how come you don't wear shoes? And I'd say, I don't feel like it, you got a problem with that? I would fight anybody. And I was that way for 33 years. Oh and I had a gym in New York for 28 years, and one day, this little five-year-old came to me and said, how come you don't wear shoes? It was like God said to me, what are you doing? That's the first person I told in 33 years why I didn't wear shoes. And when I did that, I realized I'm the problem. I haven't done anything to help anybody, and that was unacceptable. You know, I, I turned my back on everybody, and uh, I decided I was going to change it. So I closed the gym down, and I went on the... I did my first walk on the Appalachian Trail to create awareness, but it ended up being my penance <clears throat> to forgive myself. Wow. And then I realized what good is a plan or what good is awareness unless you have a plan. So, I, you know, I made a petition, I made a sign, and I carried this sign across the country, got people to sign it, and went to Washington. And I get to Washington, and it was like I was talking to the deaf. And because I'm telling them, you got to do this, you got to do that, this is the plan. And and I, when I left there, I cried because it's like I did nothing. And then I realized I'm the government. I have to do more than just talk. So that's when I opened up the center and did what I did because I realized I'm the government, not not my politicians. They're supposed to help me.
you know, I'm supposed to be their role model. So uh, wow. So that's why I that's why I do what I do. It's you know, it started out of guilt and shame, and I swore I wouldn't be my father to my children. You know, so I quit the drinking, and I it took me a long time to become responsible. Right, but what a what a a beautiful change in you know going through all of that which is traumatic in itself um and and to also be uh, growing up with trauma and not understanding it then you know military experience of having then survivor's guilt and carrying that trauma other people's trauma with you um this is um this is a huge huge issue um because not only with veterans, but there, um, you know, because plenty of there are plenty of families that have uh, family members that had trauma, just like your dad and you did, um, that gets passed down, uh, transmitted uh, generationally. Um, but there is also uh, non-veteran families that grow up with trauma, and then it gets passed down. Um, but what a story, and what a commendable. Um, outcome of learning that, you know, learning lessons and um, realizing that um, you're not the only one that is dealing with survivor's guilt and trauma and PTSD from past, from family, and then moving moving forward and how it gets, it's uh, like contagious. It just uh, keeps generationally getting passed along. Um, so I, I I commend you for all that you've done, and and that's beautiful work. Um, I I you know we're friends, so I I know the kind of work that you do, personal development, um, as well as myself, and it is it is extremely commendable. Now, I I saw that you had written that there was 22 veterans that commit suicide daily. Um, yes, and those numbers really aren't accurate. They're actually higher because when I talk to, uh, you know, law enforcement agents, they tell me when they can, they try to write it off as an accident so that the family doesn't carry the guilt of a suicide. Because wow. to die of an accident is one thing. You know, it's an accident. You can accept that. But what happens when somebody dies from suicide most people involved say, you know, this is what I heard every day when I walked across the country was, he told me I didn't believe him, I should have known it's my fault. Right. So they right. say, you know, they carry this burden. Right. I mean, that, that was the most painful thing that I went through when I walked across this country, was holding right. a mother every day while she said that. And hold me like I was her child and cry. Oh, oh my God. Oh, my goodness. That, and that, that's all survivor's guilt of, you know, I could have done more. Um, right. Why didn't I see this? Um, the same thing that you went through. So you knew what that felt like. You know, if I was there, or if I did something different, would this person be in a different position right now? Right. Um, Somebody once told me to look at yesterday with today's mind is a recipe for disaster because I didn't know then what I know now. And at that moment, I did the best I could. But when you look hindsight and you say, oh, you know, I saw he did this and I didn't do it, you know, because you don't know. If you don't know, I mean, the things that fight the monster under the bed are education and awareness. Exactly. Because if not, then that monster gets bigger and bigger, and then it'll eat you. Exactly. Now, you know, um, I've been a therapist for 18 years, and over that time I've um, had the honor of working with veterans. But I will tell you that even today that um, the, the military community feels uncomfortable about coming in for therapy, for counseling, um, that they still feel that the military is watching over their shoulder, even though they're not um, in active duty anymore. And it really keeps them. And there's this 
shame and guilt about there's there's always been a stigma for uh, mental health treatment always but in the military community it's even worse because um there for so long um they have been told that you know you don't need this and uh and and that big brother is always watching so everybody's knowing what you're doing all the time and and so i know that i have missed so many veterans that and families that wanted help but feel uncomfortable about seeking out treatment. Well, um, there's, there's a, a lot of reasons. I mean, one is it affects their career because it's like you fill out forms and they fill out a form that says, have you ever thought of suicide? Well, nobody's going to say yes because then they're not going to get the job. Sure. So I don't know why we have a form to fill out a questionnaire where we don't want you to tell the truth. Exactly. You know, and like, you know, the the topic that came to mind when you had talked to me is, you know, the difference in the mentality between the military and the civilians. Mm -hmm. And I can only speak from my experience and my point of view. But I I think a lot of people could identify with it because when you go in the military, you know, you're, you know, back when I was in, you know, you're 17 to 20 going in so you're not fully developed and also what happens you are owned by the government they drill it into you that they own you you have no rights as a citizen and if you do not obey orders you know we're talking prison we're talking execution so Mm -hmm. you don't have to think for yourself you are told what to do you are you the government owns you and wow. what happens, what I've realized in myself just recently is that, you know, that helps perpetuate a mentality of victimhood because I got that from my father. They did this to me. They did that to me because, you know, at that age when you're told what to do and you don't have to worry about, you know, where you're going to sleep, what you're going to eat, because they tell you what to do, when to do it, and it's regimented, and it happens. And, you know, you're taken care of, but you also have a function. When you get out into the civilian world, now you have all that responsibility on you. But what happens, you know, what happens that it's hard to make that transition because now, you know, I have to go figure out where I'm going to go today. I I have to set up my routine. I have to set up my orders. I mean, it's probably worse for the enlisted men than it is for the officers. I can only speak from an enlisted point of view because you know we were told when to do it how to do it you know how high do you want us to jump i mean that's that was the deal so now you get out you have to be self-motivated what's really nice about the military a lot of guys are self-motivated you know they they get a mission and they run with it you know you get a military guy you know he'll tell you he's going to show up he normally shows up and you give him a mission to do that guy's going to do his best to do it you know, I see a lot of civilian people, they might show up if you're lucky, or they might show up late if they show up at all, and you give them a job to do, it might get too hard, and they're going to leave on you. You know, military people aren't quite that well. And I was surprised to find out that the amount of military people that go to college after the military, the, ratio, the dropout ratio was very high which I thought was odd because, you know, we're highly motivated. But what Mm -hmm. happens is they already have a family. They have a wife they got to support. So they have all this stuff on top of them when they go in, so it's difficult. And when I went in college after I got out of the Marines, it was like I was dealing with little kids. Because, I mean, these guys are like, you know, they just get out of high school. Sure. I mean, I was out of high school, and I was in the military, and then come out. So I was, you know, more of a man or an adult than these people were. Right. So, you know, I you know, I wanted to get through college, so I did what it took. But also, it's hard. How do you relate with these guys? Because all they're worried about is, you know, drinking and girls and all of that, which, you know, I did my fair share of that. But, you know, I had a, I had a task. I had a mission. And if I had a wife and a child on top of that, 
it would have been really easy for me to drop out because that's my number one priority. Right. And now the other thing that, you know, because like I said, when I was thinking about the difference between the military frame of mind and the, and the civilian, now the government owns you, so you still have some of that residual with you that you expect them to do this. You, you know, I expect the government to do these programs and follow through and do it. And a lot of times it doesn't seem to work that way. Now, mm-hmm. as, a, as a civilian, you are the government. Mm-hmm. You tell the government what to do, but I realize how you tell the government what to do is you do it. It's like when I went to Washington and then cried because I told them what to do, and I realized I'm to do it and then asked them for help. So that's why I started that program and did the building because, well, I'm going to show them, and then I'm going to ask for help because I realized you know, I'll help a guy that's trying to push his car out of the ditch. But if a guy's healthy and able-bodied and he's sitting on the side of the road telling me to push his car out of the ditch, I'm not going to do it because he right. doesn't care enough. Right. So, you know, the civilians have to be, they have to be the role model because, I mean, I get why a politician basically just talk because that's all most people do is talk. I would say 95% of the people are mostly smoke and no fire. Oh, the government should do this, the government should do that. So all the politician has to do is say what we're saying. Oh, yeah, you know, we got to save the whales. Oh, we got to save the rainforest. And everybody rallies behind them. But they don't do anything because nobody else is. So they're off the hook. That's the job I want. Yeah, I'll tell you anything you want to hear. You're going to pay me a couple hundred grand a year and give me all these benefits and a pension for life, and all I got to do is say what you say to me, and I don't have to do anything. That's, right. that's an awesome job. So action, action. And so, you know, so our responsibilities as human beings to try to help well, in this particular situation of transitioning military vets to civilian life, um, how, how do um, how do we? Uh, well, first of all, you're talking about awareness of understanding that the mentality and what it's like to be in the military, um, where every decision is made for you and you're owned by the government, and you're just given tasks to do and told when to show up, um, versus. I have to run a household, I have to have relationships, um, I have a marriage, I have children, I have to function within society with, and make all these decisions myself and, and find a career now that I didn't you know, have before, that I didn't have to worry about a job or money. Um, so so uh, from, aside from awareness, what is, it, what is something else that we can do to help this transition because what we're going to go into is that because of the diversity of uh, the mentality between military and civilian is creating um, more stress um, to vets that might already have PTSD is um, complicating that more and creating um, a higher risk of suicide. Am I correct? Yes. And uh, to me, and I have done everything wrong probably that a person can do. I uh, We all have. <laughs> well, up until this point, up until the point I started walking, I never helped anybody unless there was something in it for me. And I used to say, oh, somebody should do something about this or that. But if there was a nonprofit doing it, oh, well, I don't have to do anything. Somebody's already doing something about it. So I use nonprofits as an excuse to do nothing. Okay. You know, I would look for something so I didn't have to do anything. Right. And then what I realized by doing the, the programs that we do, I would help homeless people, and their families would, would be in two blocks of the building that I was sheltering these kids. Right. They burnt every bridge with every 
family member they had. And the way, you know, I can reach a few people, you can reach a few people, but you know what? All of us could reach everybody. Not everybody would be open to it, but how people could help is they get educated about certain things. So when somebody does have a problem, they're able to help them. Because if somebody's in trouble and you don't know how to help them, you're useless as, well, I won't use that expression, but, you know, you're useless in that situation. Mm-hmm. But if if you just did one thing and nothing else, if you hear this radio station, you reach out to that one black sheep in your family, that person that has burned every bridge, and you don't judge them and say, you did this, you did that, you got to do this, you got to do that. Say, you know what? What did I do to help create this? What can I do to fix it? Because now you've opened it because, you know, it takes only one person to burn a bridge down, but it takes two to build it. So if you show you're willing to help mm-hmm. with that bridge, you have reached that person. He knows you're there. And if he's willing to make the effort, you know, it'll happen. Because I, I don't help anybody. I am there, and I offer support, and, you know, I help you help yourself. You know, people would tell me anything they thought I wanted to hear to get what they wanted out of me so they didn't have to change. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want to change, this is the biggest way because everybody knows somebody. Everybody has some family that right. would would be there for them. Everybody that has been to my building has had family that would have been there for them if they made the effort to fix that bridge. Right. And, and they weren't. We don't know how to, yeah, well, a lot of us, you know, many, many of us have not learned how to have those conversations and to try to take responsibility for um, our part and maybe why relationships are not working. And, you know, a lot of this is spiritual growth because, you know, with the spiritual growth, you're trying to grow your heart all the time and not be so self-absorbed and not be um, just focused on yourself all the time, which is where most of us are. Um, Not saying that lots of people help out all the time, so I'm not saying everybody, but I have gone through this myself, and it is really about um, growing and maturing spiritually that we are here to love each other, to help each other, to shine a light on each other, um, and that uh, we we can always hold a space of love um, and try to reconnect, um, and we don't always know how to do that um, or don't understand why we should do it. Um, well, and, and so we're talking about a lot of different things of why people don't get involved, um, and and some of it's immaturity, and some of it is I don't know how. And or, you know, we've grown up with programming that somebody made their bed. So, you know, let them lie in it and, um, you know, and all kinds of other sayings without um, being able to stick your hand out and and be there for people in different ways, um, whatever that is. So, yeah, this just opens the dialogue, because if you're willing, if you're on a spiritual growth path, what better way to be non-judgmental by taking on and saying, what, uh, what is my responsibility in this failed relationship? Why wait till somebody has committed suicide to say, oh, I should have done this, I could have done that. Here's an opportunity to say, what did I do wrong? Help me fix it. Right. I, I went to a VA hospital, and they... I guess they pretty much do a thorough background check on you before they let you speak. And they invited me to speak at, at um, in Nashville, Tennessee, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and then they uh, they said to me, whatever you do, don't say anything negative. I said, look, the country's in the shape that it's in because of me. It's my fault. I said, help me fix it. I'm not here to point fingers at you. I'm here to fix what I did. 
You know, and if, when I go in non-judgmental, because I had no judgment about that hospital, they're doing the best they can, I'm going to do the best I can. And if you go into a relationship, I know any time that somebody comes to me and say, Ron, you got to do this, you did that, you did that, I'm not even listening anymore. I'm defending myself. But if somebody takes their full, you know, their responsibility in my relationship, and at least they're open so at least I'm able to talk with them without fear of being yelled at and judged for being no good. Maybe I am no good. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, here's somebody that will at least listen to me and not just cut me off and, and judge me. And that, to me, that that is the biggest thing. That You know, and it may not go anywhere. But, you know, you have done your part. I've done my part by just being there. Right. And to me, that, yeah. you know, that's... That's the biggest thing. Right, is to, is to be there for each other. And, you know, symptoms of uh, somebody who is contemplating suicide are, are difficult because some people are really good at hiding the symptoms um, or they're, they're not giving you um, any information or, or acting any differently um, than maybe they, you would think that they would be acting. And so, uh, you know, some people don't ask for help or are not acting like something's wrong or that they're possibly contemplating suicide, um, which I call suicidal ideation. Um, And suicidal ideation would be um, I don't have a plan or an intent, um, but maybe I wish I didn't wake up in the morning, uh, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Um, But this is serious to address, too, um, just as much as the person that's contemplating something. And and so I think people understanding what suicide symptoms are of, uh, uh, you know, somebody that might be going through this, that they're not speaking about it, but recognizing that they can appear sad or depressed. Um, you know, with clinical depression or deep sadness, a loss of interest, trouble sleeping and eating um, that doesn't go away, feeling anxious or agitated or unable to sleep. Some people have trouble uh, falling asleep. They have insomnia or some people sleep all the time as a way of not having to deal with life. Um, They could be neglecting personal welfare, deteriorating physical appearance, withdrawing from friends, family, and society, or sleeping all the time, like I said. Um, Or they can have lots of interest in hobbies or work or school or other things uh, that one used to do that um, they're no longer engaging in, uh, frequent and dramatic mood changes, um, expressing feelings of excessive guilt or shame, feelings of failure, decreased performance, Uh, feeling that life is not worth living, having no sense of purpose in life, Uh, talk about feeling trapped, that there's no way out of the situation, or having feelings of desperation, uh, and and that there's no solution to their problem. And um, so, you know, but there's also... there. I have worked with people that were acting like everything was just fine, and not telling anybody that they're contemplating suicide. So well, what I, I have found, those that are acting fine or they're all of a sudden happy, and it's because they've already made the decision, and this is one thing they have control over, how and when and where they're going to do it. And it's going to mm-hmm. end this. And, you know, with military, one of the things that – that I even felt, and I wasn't even in combat, but I felt that I became an unlovable monster. I mean, I was called the baby killer. I was in there to kill, and men and women that I have known that have killed, you know, you just you just don't, like, get over that and just walk away from it. You have to come to terms with yourself and accept yourself and love yourself and forgive yourself. Mm-hmm. Because if you're an unlovable monster and you believe that, then it's reinforced by society. Mm-hmm. I mean, suicide is the only way. 
Right. Why live if you're an unlovable monster? Sure. You know. So yeah, that yeah, and that's a great point, and that also creates some more of that wedge between the worldview um, of civilians versus the military, um, and um, how how do you come back knowing that you've had to do things that are totally against our nature? We we don't come into this world with um, uh, with the thought that it's okay to kill or the I or the want to do it. It's not within our nature to do it. And so to do something that we um, is not part of our soul um, and, or society, and then be trained to have to do otherwise for um, protection of of whatever country that is, um, is is huge. And then to come back to civilian life and have some people um, honor you for uh, fighting for freedom and other people thinking otherwise is, um, is, is very difficult to handle. Um, and, And that's why we see a lot of vets come back and they just hang out with each other um because because they don't feel like they fit in anywhere um or that they can even talk about what they've been through especially if they've been in combat um that it's it's traumatizing just for them to even uh have to go through it let alone speak about it or tell somebody else about it um and so you know so I think that the awareness part of what we can do and know uh, signs and how how do we uh, not take our own personal judgment about what somebody's doing um, and uh, recognize that that our judgment sometimes and what we do and say to other people um, can uh, cause extreme pain. I feel that everybody in this country, every American should have post-traumatic stress because they all played a part in every soldier that's over there. You know, people tell me I didn't vote for it. Well, then why didn't you try to stop it? That's my son. That's my daughter. That's my friend that got killed, that lost a leg, that lost a limb, that suffered because of this because of my action or lack of action. So when people, we are so uh, disengaged or out of touch with what's going on over there, and and forgive me if I speak like I know something about what a combat vet has going through his mind. I can just say a little bit of what I observed and what I hear because I know nothing about combat. I went to a training, um, and it was a lot of combat vets there, and, you know, they carry a heavy burden for this country. They have given up their freedom for everybody else's freedom. And if you don't believe they fought for your freedom, at least that's what they were told. And I have no idea what the real deal is because I don't have access to the intel why we're even in, in a war. But they all go back. They might go their first time for their country, but after that, most of them go back for their buddy. Because they're mm-hmm. not going to leave their buddy in harm's way, mm-hmm. and they've they've given up everything after they come back because they carry this load. What do you carry? You know, a civilian. Your biggest problem is you know what's uh, you know I didn't give her what I wanted for dinner or my favorite TV show was an honor. You know, maybe oh I lost this or that. They lost their buddies. They lost their limb. They lost they lost a part of their soul. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that, you know, as a civilian, if you have not had an experience like going to war or combat or um, being a part of this, then you really don't, you just don't understand um, the magnitude of what soldiers have to go through um, because you're not experiencing it. And you might see things on television or read things, but it is not the same thing as actually being there and going through that. 
Um, let's just take a, a little second to just uh, I we we decided this evening that we had we're not going to open our phones so that you and I can have more conversation. Um, and but I wanted to remind people that you know you have a website. It is thelongwalkhome.org. Again, it's thelongwalkhome.org. And um, so Ron is – go ahead. My contact information is on there. My phone number is on there. If anybody wants to talk or they, you know, feel compelled to help out and they have a gift or a talent that they would like to share with somebody, please call me. And that number is 305-504-3795. And even if it's to tell me that I don't know what I'm talking about, I am open to learn to help somebody. Right. So, um, and and uh, moving forward a little bit with uh, with some of this, what um, how does this difference in worldview increase the PTSD risk to for soldiers to? Um, to be more heightened risk of suicide? Well, you know, a lot of guys with extreme post-traumatic stress disorder, they look fine on the outside. But then, you know, there'll be a smell, a sight, a sound, a taste that'll trigger off a past memory of something that happened then, and it'll take a guy to another place. He'll He'll just disappear in front of you. It's like uh, when I was a kid, and I used to watch combat on TV, and it's a show, and I'm I'm 11 or 12 years old, and I'm thinking, oh, that's cool, that's cool. And my father was in, and I would ask him, I, I remember asking him, Dad, did you ever kill anybody? And my father, this big, mean guy that I was scared of, he turned into a child in front of me, he got a million mile stare and he talked in a whisper. Mm-hmm. And it scared me because I didn't know who this person was. Right. And I never did it again. Aww. And here's a guy that could explode and, you know, tear a wall down, you know, mm-hmm. smack me on an instant. Just mm-hmm. because, you know. But it, to see that change, what this had done to him, and then I didn't know what it was. I get it now. I had mm-hmm. no idea the burden he carried and what he suffered. Right. Yeah. The, and, you know, the suffering of uh, the trauma and, uh, you know, the what happens is, is that you have images in your mind of whatever you saw or partook in, partook in, and um, these images keep replaying over and over and over again. And it gets into a cycle sometimes where you just feel like you can't stop it. And so anything can trigger somebody. Um, it could even be a car backfiring that sounds like a gunshot and um, or a loud noise or somebody comes up behind you and scares you. Um, there's so many different ways that people get triggered, a smell, a, you know, uh, any of the senses, and, yeah, and um, and how do and you so, tell your spouse that? How do you tell, you know, how do you tell your children? How do you, you don't tell your friends? What are you, you going to talk about that? Something that you don't want to remember? Something you don't right. want to bring up? I mean, right. I met a woman that bugged her husband for a year, and then when he told her, she said, "Oh my God, how could you do that?" And then he killed himself. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's very odd. You know, you have this stuff going on in your head, and I've had PTSD myself um, from uh, from rape. And so, PTSD is not just from uh, uh, from uh, military trauma. It's from a, it could be from an accident. It could be witnessing uh, trauma happening. Uh, you can have it tertiary trauma, which means you're just witnessing it. You're not even part of it. Um, 
and you can, and so it can be from a severe illness that somebody gets PTSD. There's many different ways to do this. And when this is happening in your head, you really don't know you you're, you're like sucked into quicksand in your head of of this repeated uh imagery and uh going through it's like watching a movie in your head and so you get sucked into it and it is very difficult to get yourself out of it or to even try to describe it to somebody as to what is going on with you so a lot of times people have nightmares when they have uh, PTSD. They feel a real detachment from others because they no longer trust, and um, you know it creates a lot of a lot of trust issues. So what we would call when those images happen again over and over are flashbacks. So um, the flashbacks are are just awful of watching whatever the trauma was over and over and over again, and you feel like you can't extricate yourself from it. And and so nightmares are another huge problem of, like, you, people don't want to go to sleep. They don't want to shut their eyes because then they're also going through reliving what happened, uh, whatever the trauma was that they uh, endured. Uh, you also avoid reminders. Anything that has to do with people, places, things that remind you of that trauma, you avoid. You just don't want to have any part of it. Um, uh, And I just talked about not sleeping. So insomnia is a huge problem. And when we have insomnia, um, when we're not sleeping seven to nine hours a night, um, we are accumulatively um, creating a sleep deficit that we cannot make up. And that sleep de- deficit causes then a mood disorder, which creates a lot of um, anger, uh, having a short temper, being really irritable, and, um, and that you become really uh, depressed. And then uh, what kicks in is a loss of interest. Uh, you're not really interested in doing things uh, very much anymore. It can create a lot of anger inside of you uh, because you you are frustrated with the um, with all of what's going on in your head and you don't know how to stop it. Uh, it can create memory loss for people because you get so stuck in your head. Um, and it causes uh, what you're described before is disassociative symptoms, which means that I'm just off in my head somewhere and I have completely disconnected and I'm unconscious. Um, people can feel really jumpy. Um, these are all PTSD symptoms that you um, are hyper vigilant, that um, like you're on guard all the time, watching to make sure that you're safe. Um, some people and some people end up turning to drugs and alcohol because of not being able to shut down all of this stuff in their head. And it is terrible. And it is really, really important for people to get help if they have any kind of PTSD, because we don't want to increase the risk of suicide. And um, the PTSD is definitely treatable. We have to learn how to stop looking at the images and take control of our mind back. And actually, we have to go through the process of feeling our feelings and going through what happened and processing it to let go of it. But what we have all learned to do is to avoid it. Like, I don't want to go near it like the plague. I don't want to go near those thoughts, feelings, any of it. I don't want to process it. I don't want to remember it. And so that in itself is creating more and more of the symptoms of PTSD and for more imagery to happen. So it is very treatable, and it means that you just you have to deal with it with somebody that you feel safe with, whether it's a clinician or a clergy, um, that um, another, you know, part of somebody, there's a lot of veteran centers out there to help people. Um, but it is really important to start processing it and working through what happened 
so that it can leave you. And I know that it works. I've done it myself. Well, there's other ways, too. I mean, that's – I kind of take a little different approach. Like, <clears throat> you know, we exercise as a group. Mm-hmm. So, And we do it with peers. So we don't have to worry about being politically correct. And we're not going to offend anybody because we're all a bunch of, like, jerks. So we, you know, we can say anything, and then it starts to come out, and we're around our peers, so we feel safe. Of course, to go to therapy and counseling and, and God forbid, somebody you know finds out about it, because that's, like, guys, that's a sign of weakness, especially military, because we're the guys you call when you're in trouble. We don't go to somebody when we're in trouble. That's weakness. I mean, that's, you know, they drill that into you and that sticks with you so if you know a lot of guys that you know need help and probably need almost as much as help as i do came and volunteered and helped and that was therapeutic for them because they were doing something they felt worthwhile they were doing something constructive they could talk to somebody that would listen that understands and they're not going to go oh my god they're going to say yeah i understand Right, right. And, and that's the yeah. biggest thing because, you know, you say some stuff like this to somebody and you see the look on their face, you know, that says it all. They don't have to say a word. Right. So exactly. that's what's good because, you know, not only do you need sleep, you need to eat properly, you need exercise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I hung out with this group that breathe, did breathing and meditation. There's a lot mm-hmm. of ways, you know, you're a multifaceted synergistic piece of equipment and you can do it with just maybe one like counseling but if you had all the topics you know like you because when i started to do when i started doing meditation again i used to do it before i went in the marines and i was pretty calm i stopped doing it and in the marines i was out of control when i got out Mm -hmm. and now i just started meditating again i'm 66 I'm getting to that point where I can still my head for a couple of seconds where I don't have this constant chatter going and telling me what a rotten guy I am. And I can just be still, and it's really nice to get that sense that, you know, I don't have to do this, and I don't have to listen to this. And, you know, somebody said to me once, he says, if if you had a friend like the voice in your head, would they be your friend? Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's nice because I'm my own worst enemy. I'm the one that, you know, people say, you don't have to think that way. Well, you know, emotions and logic are two different things. Mm -hmm. And I can, the biggest thing I can do is change the way I think. I mean, that's one of the things I do, too, is like, you know, I go to A Course in Miracles, you know, with you. Right. And that helps me forgive myself to look at things different. Right. Because it's so easy for that voice. You're no good. You did this. You did that. You know. Right. When I start to look at it is that I didn't sin and I didn't do this thing intentionally. I made a mistake. A mistake can be corrected. Right. You know, and uh, if I sin, that means I intentionally went out to hurt somebody. I don't think I. Well, I remember a few times where I intentionally went out to hurt somebody. And I regretted it. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I will never do that again right. because the pain it brings me is just monumental. Uh, mm-hmm. I used to fight a lot, and I talked to a friend of mine back home that he used to fight a lot too. And he said, you know, if I won, I proved that I was no good for beating this poor guy up. And if I got beat, I deserved it. So mm-hmm. no matter when we fought, we got, we got what we wanted to either be a monster or we deserve that beating. So, you know, when I started to change my, that dialogue going in my head and changing that, you know, I don't have to do this because I was making judgments and those judgments were about me. That's why I would Mm -hmm. fight because Mm -hmm. I was fearful. I was angry and I would lash out at anybody, but it was me. I was hitting. Right. Well, those are all great points, and, you know, everybody, we are, we are responsible for our own self. 
And if we need help, we need to ask for it. And, you know, even if, you know, going through A Course in Miracles, meditating, there you have a whole spiritual support system built inside of each one of us that God has provided um, for us to have to turn to, if nothing else, that you have the ability to have a relationship with God or spirit or universe, whatever anybody believes, and to help you with anything that is going on with you. But you have to ask and you have to take action. And ultimately, we are individually responsible for our own self. But the more that there is awareness out there, the easier it is for people to know where to start getting help. And what you're doing in giving people an outlet, someplace to go, they feel safe um, to work out and be able to have a camaraderie between people where they know that they can talk about how they're feeling and, and get some really great support is amazing because there's not a lot of places like that. And there's a lot of um, veterans that go home and go to work and, and that they're not getting what they need and their family is all suffering from that. Is there something we have about three and a half minutes left? Is there something we could just say to veteran families um, about, you know, about, uh, what would be helpful um, if their uh, spouse is having PTSD? Every situation is different. My phone number is there, and I'll say it again. It's 305-504-3795. You can call me anytime. I'll do the best I can to help you in any way I can. And the less judgmental you are, and accepting, and you know, I know it's easy to say, and it's a lot harder to do when you got somebody that's drinking and that's angry and volatile. And you know, just call up because, like I said, every situation is different. And when you're at a loss, you're at a loss. And sometimes you just need somebody to intervene. That's not family, because you know you have a whole history with them. Of they're your child, and you've judged them and told them what to do. You know, they need somebody else sometimes, and, you know, I'm available for that in any way. Okay. And, uh, that's, 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 uh, that's amazing. And so that would be Ron uh, Zaleski at thelongwalkhome.org. I also wanted to give people the suicide hotline number, which is one 800 273 8255. Again, that's 1 800 273 And uh, that's another place that people can call if they're having any of those symptoms at all. So, Ron, I want to thank you for an amazing show, a very, very, very important topic. And I'm so honored that you were um, able to come on tonight and talk about some really difficult uh, difficult things that a lot of people don't talk about, yet they need to hear what is so important to uh, military veterans and their families. And I wanted to um, remind people that my also uh, my website is debbiengoldberg.com. And so you can check me out there. And uh, if you'd like to work with me, then I'm available to do that as well. I wanted to remind people that when in doubt, never underestimate the power of prayer. You are being listened to and heard throughout the universe. And it's always responding with infinite and eternal love. Remember to go inside and listen through your heart for the whispers of heaven. And God bless you. And I am so thankful to you, Ron, for being here tonight, and maybe we can have another conversation soon. Have a, have a great one. I would just and, like to uh, add one more thing. When, when I had the sure. shelter, I 
judged everybody that walked in my door. And then I started to realize, you know, we each have our path, and I don't know what it is. And I'm just here to help you in a way that brings me joy, you know, that's beneficial. And I learned, and I am thankful and grateful that God only gave me one person to change, and I am having a heck of a time with him. Well, God bless you, and you're doing a great job. Take care. Thanks an awful lot, Debbie. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ron. Bye-bye. You've been listening to another fabulous program on Angel Heart Radio. Our goal is to remind you of how much you matter in the world and to let you know that we appreciate who you are in the world. You can check out who's on, when we're on, and who our guests are at angelheartradio.com. Everything is there. It's all just one click away. Angel Heart Radio programs are powerful tools to help you in your life and your life experience. They are not intended, nor should they, be used to replace your medical or legal advice. The views expressed by hosts, co-hosts, callers, guests and associates should not be construed as advice from Angel Heart Radio.